we started to see a couple months ago reports from researchers surfacing that they were detecting networks of coordinated and inauthentic behavior or other kinds of botnets that were engaging in pro-CCP activities. So essentially using kind of covert amplification tactics to boost the overt narratives that we were seeing from uh, Chinese officials and, and media. We also saw a report in the New York Times that the intelligence community believed that Chinese operatives in the U.S. played a role in amplifying false text messages that were disseminated. And finally, just late last week, Twitter removed 170,000 accounts that were linked to um, information operations attributed to um, China. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 18th, 2020. It's another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. This week, Alina Polyakova and I spoke with Laura Rosenberger, the director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy and a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. When it comes to information operations, most Americans probably think of Russia as the primary culprit. After all, the memory of Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election is still fresh. But over the past year, Chinese information operations have gained prominence, with the Chinese Communist Party involved in aggressive online campaigns regarding unrest in Hong Kong and, more recently, the ongoing pandemic. Laura joined us to talk about how the Chinese government wields information online, how Chinese tactics are different from Russian tactics in the information space, and how democracies should respond. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 18th. Laura Rosenberger on Chinese information operations. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We wanted to ask you on to talk about state-sponsored information operations, but maybe not the information operations that our listeners are most familiar with, which are those coordinated by Russia. Um, Instead, we wanted to focus a little bit on China um, and maybe how that compares to information operations run by countries like Russia. So let's start off just by, if you could just describe sort of what Chinese information operations have looked like, how China has used them, and maybe how they differ from Russian information operations. Sure. Well, I'm really glad to be having this conversation because I think it's, you know, a lot of our understanding of information operations, as you noted, has been shaped by um, research and analysis of what the Russian state and its proxies have done, but it is really un- important to understand how other state and non-state actors are using these these tools and tactics. So we've seen a very recent evolution in Chinese information operations. So what I'm going to talk about um, initially here in response to your question is sort of historically or in the recent sort of past, what we've seen China doing and how they've been somewhat different. So traditionally, Chinese information operations have been largely aimed at doing two things. One is creating a positive narrative or external impression of China and the Chinese Communist Party. So this involves amplifying positive content about China and the the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Or it has involved sort of the manufacture and dissemination of that those narratives, right? That's one category. The other category is the suppression of content 
that is negative about China or the Chinese Communist Party. So I talk about this as essentially denying the information space to topics, actors, and entities that the CCP does not want to occupy it, right? So this is everything from coercive tactics to silence people or or actors who are saying or talking about things that are negative about China to kicking journalists out of China, which I would sort of um, link to, to these tactics um, when those journalists report on things that are unwanted. Um, it involves the investment in media organizations to essentially coercively incentivize them or disincentivize them really to, to not talk negatively about China. And I think most importantly, it involves the use of algorithmic censorship to eliminate content that is unwanted. And this is a tactic that is um, actually written into law within China as something that Chinese tech companies have to do internally. And increasingly, we've seen Chinese indigenous platforms engaging in such algorithmic suppression and censorship tactics externally. So traditionally, it's been those two kind of tactical um, approaches in combination. Um, amplifying and disseminating positive content about China and suppressing unwanted content about China. It's been much more, therefore, about kind of creating a narrative and about actually advancing the interests of the Chinese Communist Party in terms of its external appearance and the impression of it. So, Laura, I think what's so fascinating about the work you've been doing on Chinese information operations recently, and you've written two fantastic articles uh, for foreign affairs uh, this spring that we will get to in a little more detail. Uh, But I was even struck rereading the two articles, which are, I think, about a month or so apart, how the Chinese information operation strategy has shifted even during that time, so before between how you wrote these pieces. And so I wanted to get you to talk a little bit more about that, because I think it's tempting to say that the Chinese have started to co-opt the Russian playbook. Um, and you, you you say that in one of your articles as well. But I wonder to what extent that's actually been true, um, specifically if we kind of zero in on how the Chinese have been crafting their information operations around COVID-19. So can you talk us through a little bit what we've seen happening around the COVID-19 crisis and what that tells us about some of the shifts and evolutions and tactics and strategy that we've been seeing. Yeah, absolutely. So let me contextualize a little bit what we've seen in the COVID-19 context. Last year, around the Hong Kong protests, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube identified for the first time coordinated inauthentic behavior on their platforms linked to the Chinese party state that were aimed at discrediting the protesters and essentially spreading disinformation to create the impression that the protesters were actually violent rioters. Simultaneous to that, we watched the official sort of diplomatic core of China begin to have individuals surface who were engaging very aggressively on Twitter, um, really, you know, kind of becoming online trolls, much like what we expect from from Russian officials and diplomats on Twitter. Um, particularly, for instance, those who are familiar with this space, you know, the the Russian embassy in South Africa um, being their most notorious trolling um, account, also their British 
embassy, um, we started seeing a lot of, of that kind of activity beginning to surface from, from Chinese officials. But what we saw then around COVID-19 was this sudden surge in the use of some of those tactics as well as others. And I think, again, for context here, it's really important to remember that the initial instinct when um, reports first surfaced in China of the novel coronavirus in December, and in particular when several doctors were trying to bring attention to the to the virus, including the ophthalmologist Li Wenliang, the instinct of the Chinese party state was not necessarily to control the virus, but to control information. And there was a heavy, heavy crackdown internally on information about the virus and how it was being disseminated. When the Chinese got the virus under control somewhat within China, they then really turned their information strategy externally to focus on essentially rewriting the narrative about China's initial handling of the virus, essentially trying to say that China had not actually bungled its initial response, but had, in fact, bought the world time, that it was the rest of the world that was um, screwing up its handling of the virus. In particular, democracies were really poorly equipped to to respond uh, to the virus. And some of those tactics were consistent with what I just laid out in terms of historical Chinese info ops, right? Um, Amplifying positive stories and suppressing negative ones. But alongside, we saw other strategies begin to surface, some of which, Alina, as you note, have similarities to what we have seen from the Russians traditionally. So so one is that we saw uh, really, for the first time, aggressive external dissemination of disinformation narratives about the coronavirus from China. So diplomats, um, officials, and uh, party state media um, in a very coordinated campaign disseminated multiple conflicting narratives about the origin of the virus. The most prevalent of these involves the idea that um, that the coronavirus actually started at a U.S. bioweapons lab at Fort Detrick. We can come back to Fort Detrick. It has a fun history here in the disinformation space. But it started at Fort Detrick in the U.S. and that U.S. Army officers had actually brought the coronavirus to China during the World Military Games in October. Um, there's zero evidence of this. But alongside of that narrative, which came everywhere from the foreign ministry spokesperson tweeting out conspiracy theory sites about this issue to, again, to their, their state media, we then saw other narratives. For instance, maybe the coronavirus actually originated in Italy, or maybe this data from, you know, more flu cases in the U.S. last fall could mean that coronavirus was here in the U.S. well before it showed up in China. So that use of multiple conflicting narrative disinformation narratives almost seemed, again, less about creating the idea that there was, in fact, an alternate explanation, but more that we might never know the explanation for where the virus originated. That's one set of tactics that we've seen um, that have some hallmarks to, to the Russian playbook. Another piece of it that's that's interesting, as I mentioned, is that we've seen Chinese officials and diplomats engaging relatively heavily with a network of conspiracy theory websites that have always played a pretty key role in the pro-Kremlin disinformation ecosystem and that Russian officials have frequently engaged with. 
What's interesting about these sites in particular is, again, their focus is much less on either issues related to China or, you know, or on creating a particular narrative. They're, they're much more in this kind of question everything kind of, you know, frame that is so classically what we've seen from Russia, you know, RT question more kind of approach. And the, the heavy engagement with those conspiracy websites has also been, been very notable. You know, two other points that we've seen, you know, we've seen, as I mentioned, the heavy engagement of these diplomatic accounts. Um, over the past year, there's been a more than 300% increase in the presence of Chinese officials and diplomats on Twitter, and they are pretty aggressively using those accounts. And then the last piece of it is um, the covert piece, which we can maybe come back to in more depth. But we started to see a couple months ago reports from researchers surfacing that they were detecting networks of coordinated and authentic behavior or other kinds of botnets that were engaging in pro-CCP activities. So essentially using kind of covert amplification tactics to boost the overt narratives that we were seeing from uh, Chinese officials and, and media. We also saw a report in the New York Times that the intelligence community believed that um, Chinese operatives in the U.S. Uh, played a role in amplifying false text messages that were disseminated um, earlier this spring about coronavirus. And finally, just late last week, Twitter removed 170,000 accounts, 170,000, that were linked to um, information operations attributed to um, China. And that's a pretty significant turn there. Um, A subset of those accounts, about a little less than 25,000, were sort of core information disseminators, creators, sort of um, putting out the information. And the rest of the broader network was were largely amplifiers. Um, But again, real evidence there of sort of covert engagement by actors linked to the Chinese party state. So, you know, Alina, on your question of how much of this is the Russian playbook, you know, what I would say is um, it, it seems to me that we are absolutely seeing Chinese officials and, and entities engaging in, in activities that have much more traditionally been what we've seen from Russia and not wholly characteristic of what we see from China. I think it remains to be seen in the long run if this is their new approach or if this is really, you know, I believe China's actually acting out of insecurity here, that this is much more about desperation to shift the narrative than it is about some kind of long-term play for power in the use of these tactics. But I do think that we've seen them continuing to engage on this. And what's really interesting about the data set that Twitter released um, and that several research groups published on was that the engagement of those networks was on four different topics, only one of which was COVID-19. So these networks are clearly out there engaging on on other issues of interest to, to China. Thanks, Laura. You put a lot out there. I just want to quickly highlight uh, the two really um, shocking figures that you noted. One is the 300% increase in uh, Chinese diplomats using Twitter uh, to message. And this is particularly shocking because, of course, Twitter is outlawed in China. So it's obviously being exploited and used for a non-Chinese, non-domestic Chinese audience um, by the diplomatic services in various ways. And there's some interesting examples I'm sure we could talk about there uh, from the COVID-19 crisis, especially. And then the other piece, of course, is the recent uh, Twitter disclosures of the suspension of 
170,000 accounts, which, you know, what we know about uh, the extent to which social media platforms are able to identify and take down what they call, you know, coordinate authentic activity. This is probably just one part of a much larger network because, you know, clearly uh, they can't identify everything that's happening and these things tend to evolve very quickly. And so if we take that number and really absorb it, I mean, also understand that it's probably not the whole picture and the whole picture is even much more um, aggressive than that would suggest, I think is, is quite a change from what we've seen um, coming from China uh, prior to this moment. And I think to my mind, you know, how we've seen this evolution in tactics and the addition of some tactics and strategies is really sort of an inflection point um, in how the Chinese are approaching uh, the contest for information uh, going forward. I think we'll get to that because you write a lot about why it's so important to think about uh, disinformation, a much broader environment around the competition for the information space uh, in which the Chinese are very, very actively competing along with the Russians and in which democratic governments are kind of trailing behind. Uh, but before we get there, I want to hand it over to Quinta because I think what's interesting your where you left us there, a little teaser, um, is your point about how the four issue areas that the Twitter takedown um, identified as the focus areas of the narrative, only one uh, was around COVID-19. So I'd be curious to hear more about what the other issue areas are, of course. But um, I think Quinta had a follow up directly on that. Yeah, Laura, I was curious uh, for your thoughts on how China has responded to the recent protests across the country in the wake of the death of George Floyd. There's been some really interesting reporting about how Chinese media has covered it, sort of playing up disorder in the United States. Um, And I'd love to know your thoughts on how that fits into everything we've just described. Yeah, absolutely. So it's been interesting to watch um, how the Chinese have have tried to address this. And and one thing I think that is is notable that I'll surface here that relates to the to you know the the last question from Alina is it's pretty clear that especially when it comes to the the actual employment of some of these tactics that while um, the Chinese party state is trying them out they're still pretty ham handed a lot of it. So for instance, like the Twitter network that was taken down you know, its engagement rates were pretty low. A lot of accounts had no followers. It hadn't, you know, a lot of the profiles were undeveloped. Clearly still like a lot of learning to happen there for them to get anywhere close to what Russia's done. Similarly, in their engagement on the protests in the United States, we've seen what I would characterize as a a real kind of lack of understanding about some of the cultural reference points in the United States, where I think in contrast, we have seen the Russians um, having a little bit more of a sophisticated understanding there. So actually, um, well, well, I'll come back to some of the, the more problematic stuff that they've really done. One of my favorite examples of a tweet that didn't exactly land right was the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson um, attempting to tweet in solidarity with the protesters by tweeting all lives matter. Clearly, missing the fact that all lives matter has actually been used as a retort to try to discredit the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, And so it just kind of showed a real lack of sophistication there in actually trying to co-opt this movement for their own purposes. Now, you know, those things aside, 
Um, we certainly have seen, you know, Chinese media and Chinese officials essentially trying to use the protests and in particular the racism, um, as well as the police actions to essentially discredit American democracy. And this is a common theme that we see increasingly in Chinese information operations that, of course, aligns with what Russia and other um, sort of authoritarian actors do in their messaging, which is just simply trying to discredit democracy. Um, So, you know, we've seen a lot of the highlighting of that. We've seen a lot of commentary about, you know, police brutality on the protesters I think the challenge is it's not lost on most people that, you know, I think a chutzpah is probably the greatest, the best term to describe, to use this here, right? Like here is the regime that, you know, led the Tiananmen crackdown, right? Here is the regime that has a million Uyghurs in camps in Western um, China, right? Here is the regime um, known for, you know, significant human rights abuses attempting to have some moral high ground. So I think a lot of it has sort of fallen flat for that reason. You know, th- the other thing that I that I think is notable here is, in fact, some of the messaging that we've seen from China and, and also from Russia, I don't know if Aline is watching this as well, has actually attempted to characterize the protests themselves as a sign that democracy isn't working. You know, not necessarily, obviously, you know, racism, which is a very bad sign about where democracy is at, right? Police brutality, all of that. And we would all agree those are bad for democracy and we've got to, you know, address them and eliminate them. But the protests themselves, I think most of us in a democracy would actually say are a sign of a healthy democracy. Protesters taking to the street to, to rally against injustice and push for change from government, that is a, that is a healthy democratic function. And when you see, you know, Chinese officials trying to point to protests as essentially a sign that democracy isn't working, um, I think it's a sign that they really don't understand democracy. But of course, it speaks to their own, you know, very insecure framework, both Beijing and Moscow, which do really see protests as a threat to their regimes, and, and rightly so. Yeah, I think what's interesting, Laura, is, of course, looking at the longer history of Russian and Soviet disinfo and and propaganda operations. This kind of social unrest, um, especially around race issues, has been sort of the favored fertile ground for Soviet and also now Russian disinformation campaigns against the United States. Uh, We know that from a lot of work that went on during the Cold War around these issues, but the notion that um, whenever you see any sort of, you know, social unrest, whether it be peaceful demonstrations or or even uh, violent uh, riots that we, of course, saw happening in the 60s in the United States, always provide this uh, ample content for uh, Russian and back in the day Soviet media to try to show that democracies are chaotic, they're dangerous, um, they can't manage uh, to maintain law and order. Um, and that, and spreading that message and amplifying that message across the world, kind of within this broader meta narrative that you know democratic governments just don't work, right? Um, that you need this hard authoritarian hand. I mean, that's the implication that kind of goes unsaid. And I think I've seen a lot of that kind of meta narrative emerge around uh, not just COVID nineteen um, and how Russian sources at least amplified. Uh, some of the mishaps that happen in Italy, in other European countries, certainly in the United States, around managing the public health crisis, 
And now with uh, Black Lives Matter protests, the amplification of that as a signal that your democracies are just dangerous, they don't work, uh, look at what's happening on the streets, right? And amplifying all of that in part of, as part of this broader attack on the efficiency and effectiveness of democratic governance. So it's interesting to hear you talk about how this has also been a theme in, in the Chinese uh, information space or information influence space. And so that brings me to um, a quick question for you, which is, you know, is it fair to say that we're seeing a convergence between uh, Russian narratives and Chinese narratives? You alluded to this a little bit um, in some of your comments. It seems like you're saying we are seeing some convergence in the tactics of how you carry out these kinds of influence campaigns in the information space. But are we also seeing a convergence of narratives? And is, or is that just too much of a blanket statement and it's just still too early to tell? So I think we are seeing some convergence of narratives. And that's around a couple of different things. So one is, you know, these questions about the origin of the coronavirus. We saw the Chinese most aggressively pushing that. Iranian um, state actors actually pretty heavily engaged on that as well. The Russians, I would say, sort of drafted off of that. They never really fully latched onto it in, in a concerted way themselves, but they were happy to sort of pass it along. And we've also seen actually Venezuelan actors engaging on, on some of that as well. More broadly, I think I, the narratives in the COVID context but also I would say in the, in the um, you know, anti-racism protest context, we've certainly seen both Russia and China pretty heavily engaging on the themes that on sort of anti-Americanism, number one, and number two, that democracy doesn't work. And that's, you know, something that advances their interests respectively. And so we see um, a good bit of, of intersection there. Um, and, and what I would characterize actually is circular amplification. So beyond just narrative convergence, we see heavy circular amplification between Russian actors, Chinese actors, Iranian actors, and then, as I said, in some instances, Venezuelan actors. The, the other area in which we see, you know, a little bit of, of a convergence is the sense that, you know, that the U.S. as a partner for other countries is is no longer what it used to be, right? So this relates to the anti-Americanism piece, but it's essentially exploiting the U.S. retreat from the world. And, and China in particular has sought to advance this because they are attempting to portray themselves as the new partner of first resort. Um, and we saw this certainly through the narrative push that accompanied their provision of assistance to certain European countries early in the COVID-19 crisis. But we occasionally see a bit of convergence around some of that. And so I think that, that we are seeing, um, as you suggest, not just a convergence in tactics, but also a convergence in narratives. I will say again, though, that in my mind, the jury is out if this is a long-term convergence or a convergence at a particular moment in time around a particular set of issues where uh, these regimes have some alignment, but where in the long term, you know, they may diverge. But my jury is, is out there, I think. So I think we, we really want to dive into some of what you just put on the table there in terms of how China is sort of positioning itself as the responsible party in context of 
uh, U.S. retreat. But before we do that, I want to go back to your reference from earlier about Fort Detrick, because you you mentioned that there's kind of an interesting disinformation history there. So tell us a little bit about that, because I actually think it, it goes to some of what you were just discussing about sort of Chinese and Russian convergence. Yeah. So um, some of your listeners may be familiar with the fact that Russian information operations or disinformation operations um, several decades ago tried to create and spread the narrative that the CIA or other sort of U.S. government actors had created the HIV AIDS uh, virus. And this was a, a narrative and a disinformation theory that was was spread pretty heavily, in particular in Africa. And Fort Detrick plays a central role in that story, which is that, you know, the allegation goes that the virus actually originated in a U.S. bioweapons lab at Fort Detrick. Now, folks should know that Fort Detrick was at one point a, a U.S. biological laboratory um, operated by the U.S. Army that has been shuttered um, for quite some time. But it pops up constantly in various disinformation narratives um, around bioweapons. So its role in the HIV AIDS narrative peddled by Russia is is its most, I think, sort of central casting role. But we've seen it pop up even in things like the poisoning of Sergei Skripal by the, you know, by the Russian GRU operatives in the UK a couple of years ago. Um, of the dozens of theories that the Russians floated about that, Fort Dietrich featured in one of them. So I think it's it's by it's no accident that Fort Dietrich is playing a role in the um you know, in the disinformation narrative about the origin of the coronavirus. And Quinta, as you point out, you know, it, it is quite notable in that sense that that China has so clearly latched onto and spread this narrative when Fort Dietrich really comes out of sort of Russian disinformation history in a very central way. So th- thanks, Laura, for taking us through that wild ride um, of, of Fort Dietrich. It's so fascinating how these themes keep coming back. I mentioned earlier and alluded to that one of the main um, themes that you've been talking about and writing about a lot is this idea of great power competition. I'm going to use that trope. uh, First and foremost, playing itself out in the information space. And that the reason why we're seeing, you know, Russia and China invest in the kinds of tactics and strategy and distribution mechanisms that we've been talking about in this podcast for with you and with other guests is that it's part of it's part and parcel of a stated kind of foreign policy strategy and it's not part of our foreign policy strategy in the United States or among our allied democracies and this is something you wrote about explicitly in your foreign affairs article from uh, this April um, about how we can make cyberspace safe for democracy so in that, you write that democracies are at risk of losing the information contest. Can you walk us through what you mean by that as, as a way of getting us to talk about what we should do? Absolutely. So the way I see information playing a role in whether you want to call it great power competition or whether you want to call it you know, the sort of system struggle between democracy and autocracy that I think is really a defining dynamic of geopolitics in the 21st century. Information is playing a central role to to essentially the, the power struggle. Democracies and authoritarian regimes have very different philosophies on information. 
In democracies, information essentially rests with citizens. It's uh, free and open flow is central to the function of deliberative democracy, um, and it is not something that should be harnessed or held by the state. In authoritarian regimes, information is something that they fear if it exists in the wild. And so information is something to be controlled and manipulated by the state and potentially can be a weapon um, if used against their its own citizens. And so we have very different philosophies of information between democracies and authoritarians. And, you know, if you think about that philosophy from an authoritarian perspective, you can see how the kinds of tactics we just talked about naturally evolve from that philosophy of information as a, as a tool to be harnessed and um, something to be both controlled and manipulated. From a democratic perspective, you know, this asymmetry means that we're really challenged in figuring out what our responses should be. You know, in my mind, the right response is not to become more authoritarian and exert greater control and manipulation of over information. But we haven't yet figured out a way to actually contest the information space in a way that is democracy affirming. And when I talk about the information space, let me just kind of take one second to break down what I mean here. What we've largely talked about today is what I would call sort of the, the information and data dimension of this broader contest, right? It's the control and manipulation of the actual content um, and the data that comes along with it. But Alina, you in your question just now um, mentioned the distribution channels. And I think that's a really important point to pause on here because I talk about this in my article as essentially the architecture or infrastructure layer of particularly the digital information space, but it applies to the traditional media information space as well, where China and Russia in particular have invested a pretty significant amount of resources in figuring out how to gain greater control of the information infrastructure that actually disseminates information. So whether that's, you know, China investing in its own indigenous platforms like TikTok, which is the most downloaded app globally, right? Or whether it's, you know, China's investment in 5G infrastructure that actually is going to form the backbone of a of, you know, future um, you know, digital infrastructure. Those are all sort of key ways that we see Russia and China in particular focusing on dissemination. And then the last piece I talk about in my in my article is um, the governance piece. And, and we really don't talk about that very much. I think it's in the sort of background for a lot of things, but I think it's absolutely really critical. China and Russia in particular have been working aggressively in, in both multilateral bodies and also in countries in Africa and Southeast Asia and Latin America to rewrite rules about information to essentially create the sovereign and controlled philosophy of information that they themselves apply domestically on an international scale. Um, and this is everything from pushing for a cyber, a new cybercrime treaty at the UN General Assembly, which Russia got the votes for late last year, to, you know, literally countries passing um, cybersecurity laws that are copy-paste of China's own cybersecurity law. And right now we see Beijing and Moscow with these very concerted, multidimensional approaches where, again, that controlling and manipulating information is something that just fits so much more with their philosophy. In the U.S., you know, 
most of these issues actually fall in the private sector or areas that our government hasn't really prioritized. And again, I think the challenge is not to mirror image in the solution, but to figure out new ways of both putting forward principles of what a democratic information space looks like. My own view is that, you know, part of our problem right now, when we think about the contest for information in places like Africa, is that surveillance capitalism doesn't look that much different to most people than um, the mass data collection that we see from the Chinese government and its entities. And so we need to figure out a way to differentiate ourselves, to differentiate our model of information in a way that puts democracy at the center and that affirms, affirms the integrity of the information space itself, rather than allow it to be manipulated and degraded. So as an example of that, I'm curious if you could just walk us through sort of how you think democracies have done in responding to China's influence campaigns regarding the coronavirus. So you you wrote in April in Foreign Affairs that, you know, China's strategy has plenty of flaws. It's a little contradictory. Um, it's sort of portraying itself as a responsible provider of public goods, but it's also being very irresponsible online in many ways. But then you write, the strategy may nonetheless succeed if democracies around the world don't counter it wisely with their own affirmative strategy. So that was in April. Now we're in June. Uh, how are democracies doing? Not great. I think I'd probably still say we're about where I was writing a couple months ago. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is, you know, it's a it's a key point in that last bit that you that you just read, which is we need our own affirmative strategy. So much of the focus on disinformation and on these information tactics has been on countering them. It's focused on exposing these operations, debunking them, putting up defenses and these things are important and and in most cases necessary, but they're absolutely insufficient. Right now, there are huge information vacuums that our authoritarian competitors are just filling with their garbage. And unless we figure out a way to be much more nimble and innovative in how we employ information, including from a government perspective, where I spent most of my career, you know, trying to get a tweet cleared out of the State Department is like pulling teeth, right? In order to be able to have an affirmative strategy in the information space, we need to empower our diplomats to be much more nimble to be much more able to put information at the center of their approach, to understand that, in fact, being much more transparent about how we do business is actually the way that we are going to, to succeed in this space. The, the second piece I think that's important and why I think that we're not doing so well is that we need to be doing much more to work with our allies and partners. The EU and NATO have both stepped up very aggressively, despite some own challenges that they've faced from Chinese coercion and whatnot. But their you know, senior leaders at both the EU um, and NATO have been very, very forceful in calling out what China is doing and why it's so problematic. But unfortunately, right now, we don't have the strong transatlantic democratic approach to these issues that we need. And frankly, it's not just transatlantic. Our allies and partners in the Asia-Pacific region have been dealing with Chinese information operations for, you know, and other course of behaviors for quite some time. We need a real democratic 
multilateral approach to dealing with protecting, defending, and really advancing a democratic information space. The U.S. can't do this alone. Europe can't do this alone. We need to be doing this in a much more collective way. And the third piece is, and maybe even the most important piece, is that we have too many actors right now, including in elected positions in our own government, who see information as a weapon themselves and who engage in disinformation, who weaponize information on a constant basis, who attack the free press. And when we can't show a contrast in our own use of information, particularly from the highest levels of government, it essentially really actually, not only do we lose the the moral argument, but we actually make our own information space far more vulnerable to these manipulative tactics from other regimes. So, you know, those are, I think, some of the three big pieces. There's many others that I could go through, you know, whether that's needing new ways of public-private partnerships to work with the tech companies to really enable the building of, of digital infrastructure that is democracy affirming, or whether that is reinvesting in institutions like the UN and other multilateral institutions where these governance conversations are happening, not to mention standard setting bodies, which not to get too wonky on your on your listeners here, but these are the bodies that are in theory setting technical standards for internet infrastructure and telecommunications infrastructure, but have really in many instances, particularly around AI and, and other areas, um, taken on a more sort of normative values-based approach where the U.S. has really not played an assertive role previously and, and really needs to focus in. So a lot of work to be done, I think, for us to really step up our game in a meaningful way in this space. So, Laura, before we wrap, since you mentioned uh, the need to work together across democracies and especially with our European allies, uh, one of the interesting things that's, I think, highlighting how difficult it is to deal with Companies like TikTok, for example, um, that are uh, garnering a larger and larger share of the market these days, uh, but are, of course, trying to position themselves as uh, equal uh, in terms of their transparency and accountability to uh, American companies like Facebook and Twitter um, and others. And there was interesting news out recently that TikTok was invited to join the EU's code of practice, which, of course, is this voluntary set of standards that companies, social social media platforms have signed up to and, you know, submit uh, regular reports to the EU as a result on what they're doing to their transparency, accountability, and data privacy. Um, what do you think about that idea that the way to get this growing uh, Chinese social media sector to comply, I suppose, um, is by integrating them into these kinds of uh, institutional bodies or agreements alongside uh, Western companies. Thanks, Lena. I think it's a really important question, and I some of my colleagues actually wrote a piece um, that was published by the EU Observer um, on this very question that I would commend to to your listeners. You know, I think that that how um, democracies deal with these indigenous platforms from authoritarian regimes that have very different values and, and very different laws that they operate on 
is one of the most important questions that, that we have really not surfaced in nearly enough detail. What I would say is a couple of things. You know, I should say up front, I don't think I have the answer. I do really worry about incorporating companies like TikTok into things like the code of practice or into other kinds of formats where they're treated as just another tech company. You know, fundamentally, based on Chinese law, uh, they are not just a another tech company in the way sort of U.S. tech companies are um, or companies from any democracy. But, you know, on top of that, I think, I mean, many of us have questions at times about whether, you know, some U.S. tech companies really act in good faith. Um, but I think there's even greater questions when it comes um, to companies like TikTok. There was a there was another interesting example that came out last week, which is that Zoom, which has a series of ties with China, um, which I won't elaborate on here, but you know there there are, are some direct ties there. Um, Zoom actually um, engaged in extraterritorial censorship on behalf of the Chinese government last week around conversations about um, Tiananmen Square and the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. And, you know, Zoom has copped to it and they've now said, we realize we made a mistake, but they've said, we've realized we made a mistake because we allowed China to censor outside of its borders. But basically the implication of what Zoom wrote in their statement was that they are fine with actually facilitating Chinese censorship within, within China. And so that's a little bit of a complicated case there. But I think that we're going to continue to encounter these. And I think we really need to, to have a, a serious conversation amongst democracies about this. I think that normalizing these companies and allowing them to be seen as just another tech company is exactly what the Chinese party state wants. They want to put the gloss on these companies, just like they attempted to do with Huawei, right? They wanted Huawei to be just another telecommunications company. And, you know, don't mind, you know, these Chinese laws and, and ties with the party and the, and the government, right? And, and I think that that's a really, really dangerous thing. But what is the answer then? Do we simply ignore them? Do we ban them? Do we limit them somehow in terms of their access to consumers? These are the thorny questions that I don't have the answers to yet. So I feel like I have more of the like sense of what not to do than, than what to do. But I think it's a real urgent area for some, some conversation. All right. Um, well, well, we'll unfortunately have to save that conversation for another day because we're going to have to leave it there. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to you both. This was great. You've been listening to the Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pache Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast in whatever app you use, and thanks for listening.